god, she's still going, take, isn't she? Take take four. Yeah. Uh, so sorry if y'all could hear some background noise. We've been trying to record this for the past like fifteen minutes, but Brittany's cat won't shut the hell up. <laughs> she is running around. She's very excited about life. She's very hyper at the moment. She, she so she's eating. Every time we try to record, <laughs> she always immediately starts to eat. I don't know if she's decided that's her routine, whatever. This time she like found a toy. She never plays with toys, but she decided to play with this one right yep. now for the past like 10 minutes. And yeah, anyways, this is blood and wine. Yes, it is. <laughs> I'm Brittany. I'm Tyler. And the kitty you will hear is Willow. Oh, there, there she is. <laughs> wow. That. Okay. Well, yep. she heard her name and she came a run in. Yeah. But honestly, yeah, sorry for cat and dog noises. There's no use trying to cut it out at this point. No. It's too many. No, sorry. There there are special guests for this episode. Um, which is fair. They've been wanting to be on the podcast for the whole time. Y'all now is your time. Now is your moment. My moment. Um anyways, um, I want to share something that was pretty cool that we found out. So yeah. y'all know we grew up in Oklahoma, which is not known for its wines at all. No, it's not. It's generally um, a lot of their wines. They do have wineries there now, but generally yeah. they're pretty sweet and not yeah. necessarily the ones that we're interested the, in. But they're the one that's coming like about. the famous one that's like nasty bitch winery or no, it's like two broke bitches. What's it called? I have no idea. <laughs> it's the one that's near tall. Anyway, it's some name like that. Apparently, it's really popular. Two broke bitches. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe I should just open these wineries. Maybe. Um, but there is a winery that is, like, really close to where we grew up. Yeah, and that, it's been there for a while. Yeah. We have no idea. Like, it was there when we were growing up there. Never heard of it. And that we god what were we i think we were just looking we were like looking for stuff to do and yeah i saw this and i was like um hold on so yeah we're actually for our next episode going to be getting a bottle of wine from them and i mean we'll have a lot more to talk about then but i just thought it was so cool that it's like oh this random ass oklahoma vineyard yeah and it's like it's like Claren or Clorin Winery. We'll obviously determine how to say that properly yeah. when we it's Chlorine Winery. <laughs> we were actually there, but from reading their reviews of their wines, I mean, it, yes, they definitely have the sweet options, but yeah. it seems like they have a wide array of wine options. Yeah, they have like and, a cab and I think a couple of their the like deeper bold reds, and, and they like, grow the grapes there yeah. at the at the vineyard, Which, and it looks beautiful. It'll be so interesting to see. So one of the things that Jen had mentioned about Texas wineries is. That the growing season is really short because it gets so hot. Yeah. So that mm. the grapes don't have a super long time to develop the deeper flavors. That's why they use um, all the sciency stuff, the like right. flash freezing and thawing th- to give their grapes more depth and stuff. Yeah. But since Oklahoma is much colder than Austin, and it's true, I, I wonder how those grapes would compare to. California or Washington calves, which those are just the two I'm most familiar with. We absolutely need to ask. Yeah. I'm very curious about it. Yeah. Also because I didn't think 
at all mm-hmm. that Oklahoma soil, which is very like clay, clay, yeah, would be suffice to grow any type of vines. No. So, so we'll have to, we'll have a lot of questions. I hope that whoever's running the tasting room is ready. Yes, because we're gonna be like <laughs> that. And also, what about what about this? Quick question. So the only AVA in Oklahoma is the Ozark one, spanning from east of Tulsa into the Ozark Mountains, including Missouri and Arkansas. How does your wine compare to those? And why is this not an AVA? Or I don't know. Apparently I'm going to interview them like I'm getting them a job. (laughs) That's what it sounds like. (laughs) Tell me about a time when you had to use wine data to fulfill supply chain stuff. I don't know. Wine data. Wine data. Honestly, that is... I'm going to remember that. I'm going to start my own podcast where I drink a bottle of wine and teach people how to do, like, taxes or something. But I'm drunk. It'll be called Wine Data. (laughs) (laughs) That's trademarked. You can't take it, listeners. Wine Data. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do when people call it Wine Data? That's fine. You know, just... It's interchangeable. You say lawyer, I say lawyer. I know. You also say either, and I say either. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm apparently not from wherever the hell you're from, even though I am. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, so just want to do a quick uh, Patreon plug. Be sure to check out our Patreon page. Become a member if you'd like to listen to our murder minis. um, As long as... Last week's episode was... As long as. That was not what I meant. As long as. That was like, okay. (laughs) Not what I meant to say. No, but last week's episode was a Patreon pick that Sam chose. Yes. So if you are at the Cabernet Sauvignon Convict level, you get to pick a topic for an episode and we'll do it. It's really fun. We have found some very interesting ideas. We've done Buried Alive. We've done Haunted House Murders. Mm -hmm. I mean, those those are so fun because they're oftentimes ideas that we would have never thought of. Yeah. So I really like those. And it's great that if you have a crime or a topic that you're like, this one's super interesting. I want to hear more about it. Yeah. Um, Or I want more people to hear about it than... Absolutely. So that's, and it's, it's super fun. Well, and also, listeners, thank y'all so much. Y'all have sent us a few ideas. We're yes. collecting that information. And we have one listener that lives outside of, uh, she lives in like central Texas, but she delivers mail to this guy that is. Oh seriously a murderer he's just not convicted and it's super um, intense it's and... so intense and <laughs> we were reading her message and like replied back we were like oh my god please be careful when you're delivering him as mail yeah and like that's just terrifying and it's just so scary knowing that you know someone you're delivering mail to every single day potentially killed someone not yeah. like well i'm sure that's i mean the case for a lot of, but like you don't yeah. know yeah you don't know no that's she knows that's true so but anyway <laughs> send us messages like that because we love reading them yes love hearing um you know your true crime stories or anything that you i don't know that you've been around or know about like let us know because that is absolutely a case that we want to dive into more and it's probably we're probably going to feature it if we can find enough information absolutely so also make sure to subscribe to us uh, on your uh, platform of choice, Google Play, I or Apple Podcasts, 
Stitcher, I don't know, all the things. Podbean is one I continuously remember because yeah. I think we're on it. We are, and I think I it's because really it's one it I've is. never heard of and it sounds kind of weird. Podbean. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, like a pee in a pod? Okay, anyway. Oh. Right? Maybe? maybe? I don't know. I don't know. Pee's not a bean, is it? No. It, I don't know. It might be. <laughs> Anyways. Um, <laughs> hold on. The did my the world, evening. <laughs> did my world just shatter? I don't know. But yeah, make sure to subscribe. You'll get notified when our new episodes come out. We do episodes weekly. And yeah. Yeah. Well, do you want to go ahead and just let's hop right into the topic? Yeah. So I was actually kind of excited or like, okay, that I lost last episode <laughs> because I wanted to do this topic for a hot minute now. You definitely um, have. Because this was a topic we'd originally written on our list when we were first coming up with the podcast. Like, we wrote a long like time ago. 50 topics down. Y'all, I look at them, some of them now, and I'm like, ooh, that's bad. <laughs> yes, it's I true. mean, like, sometimes, like, brutal murders, and I'm like, that's all of them. That's, that's basically, basically all of them. It's basically all of them. <laughs> um, but this is one I thought would be super fun, especially in the new year, and it is College Town Murders. Yes, and this is a very interesting topic mm-hmm. and i think we both took a similar angle yes so, so i not i think i know yeah. we both took a similar angle so Brittany and i actually did do undergrad at the same place at university of oklahoma in norman which i'm sure you guys don't know because i don't think we've ever mentioned it no never no super but, heavy sarcasm yeah yeah oh. um <laughs> But we we weren't actually there at the same time at any point because no. Brittany's old. But thanks, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> so rude. <laughs> but it's interesting because we'll have stories and stuff of things that happened at the university or things that we did, and it's like at the same place but different times. And I don't know, it's interesting. It is. But so for this one, we. Kind of wanted to dive into murders in Norman, Oklahoma that kind of center around the University of Oklahoma. Yes. So, little background on Norman. Norman is the third largest city in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And it it's home to about like 120,000 people. And it's about 20 miles south of Oklahoma City. It's most well-known for being the home of OU, yeah. which is the largest university in the state. And there's like 30,000 students there. Yeah. So it's pretty big, which I did not... So our biggest rival is UT, University of Texas, here in Austin, where we live, which is wonderful. (laughs) I didn't realize until not that long ago that UT has like 60,000 students. Oh, yeah. It's huge. Like, that's... That is ridiculous. Well, that's why just now when you said like, you know, 30,000, pretty big. I'm like, I mean, yeah, but no. No. It's not. And also, this just gives y'all an idea of the size and the population of Oklahoma with the third largest city being like... 120,000 people. Being the size of like a suburb. Anyway, yeah. Um, Did you know, fun fact, because they're all also fun, that I think the largest school by enrollment in the, it's either in the world or the U.S., is CUNY, so the City University of New York. Yeah. And it's like 430,000 people. Oh my god. Yeah. 
it's I think it's across all of their campuses. Right, but, which they have a lot. Yeah. But still I was like, oh shit, that's oh oh how long is your graduation? Because mine, mine was long. long enough and it was I was yeah, also in arts and, arts sciences. and sciences kid. Yeah, so College of Arts Sciences, it's the biggest one. Literally my graduation had to be held in the basketball stadium because there was like four thousand of us or something. It, it was so it was a lot more than that actually. Yeah, um, it was a lot. Whatever. So, yeah, OU, 30,000 students in Norman, boom. So, jumping into Norman and it's, like, crime statistics, because yeah. it's like, that'll be interesting. As far as towns its size go, it's considered pretty safe. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2010, Norman's crime index was 33% less than the national average. And that year in the city, there were two murders, 47 rapes. 36 robberies, 53 assaults, and 811 burglaries. That is a lot of burglaries and a very high number of rapes. Yeah, I think a lot of that is due to it like being, being a college, college town. town. And, yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Don't rape people. Yeah, leave people alone. Leave people alone. So overall, it is much safer in o- in Norman than in Oklahoma as a whole. And the likelihood of becoming a victim of a violent crime, which is murder, rape, robbery, and assault, in Norman is 1 in 365, compared to Oklahoma, which is 1 in 222. Okay, so it is safer than the state overall. Yeah. Also, those are reported crimes Uh, and statistics. So that's... Good thing to bring up. Yeah, because uh, I promise you the... Rape, assault, and robbery are much higher. Yes. Murders is pretty accurate. Murders are almost always reported because they're murders. Right. If they're known about, they're reported. Uh, The other crimes, though, much less often reported. Right. But So that's, I guess, fun intro into it. Yeah. Um, But yeah, College Town Murder, University of Oklahoma. Let's um, get into the wine. Yes. So the wine that I picked for this episode actually has absolutely nothing to do with Norman or Oklahoma or college. But OU's colors are crimson and cream, and it is a red wine, and that was a stretch. That is exactly why I picked a red wine. I knew it. Yes. You could have also picked a white wine, and it would have worked. That is oh true. Oh my god. That's why we love wine. Red and white. Oh Dude, my god. It, you're right. It's you're not right. red and white, though. Yeah, don't say that. Crimson and cream. This is crimson wine. Ew, but I don't want a cream wine. It sounds gross. Or it sounds like a real buttery Chardonnay, which is also gross. (laughs) Okay, so I got the J.O.B. Malbec. It's from 2018 and from Mendoza, Argentina. And this is one that, you know, Argentina has a long history of making really, really good wines. And Mm -hmm. so does um, this uh, the guy that made this one, the Vin- the Vinter. I so I always associate Is that the Malbecs. right name Vinter. I think so. Yeah, I always associate Malbecs with Argentina or Chile. So do I. So do I. So this wine, it's super smooth and it's crafted from grapes grown in Mendoza's premium district. And it's treated to a brief oak aging that adds some subtle spicy and smoky notes. Mm. Um, it does boast a long history of acclaim and um. Uh, just again, like super great grape growing region. Yeah. When it comes to you know th- what type of wine, again, like I said, it's a Malbec. It's a medium bodied, and it's served best with steak and pork. 
It has enticing aromas of blackberry, cherry, and sweet baking spices, which I'd really huh. like to smell it to see what that is. I'm like, is this like cloves or ginger or pumpkin pie mix? I mean, I don't know. What if it's sugar and pumpkin baking pie soda? spice. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is. Sugar and baking soda. Mm. Is this spices? Um, so for the taste, it's ripe plum and bramble underpinned. What the fuck does bramble taste like? I don't know because ever since we talked to Jen, I'm like, is that the stems? Is it what is? It's like bramble, like bushes and stuff. I yeah. But um, it apparently it's also underpinned by some elegant vanilla and subtle smoky notes. Ooh. So it really does seem to span the spectrum. And I'm sure those smoky notes are from the um, like the, the okay, okay. yeah, yeah. So um, without further ado, I'm gonna open this. Open that up because we need this. This was a long week, and yeah, and it is time. To have some wine. Yes. I just, I feel like it's pretty much across the board for everyone. Like, wine consumption goes up in Q1 because you need it. Because work is hard and life is hard. And, and Q1 is hard. Yeah. All right. Smell that? Oh. Maybe I it smell smells like... Bramble? I don't know. It's It's almost like a... Like a proteiny smell, like a like prosciutto or something. Interesting. Yeah. Like that's that's kind of what I'm getting. That's the the smokiness. Yeah. Maybe like a smoked like a, meat yeah. kind of. Hmm. Interesting. I'm not really smelling any baking spices. Like not even when I'm trying to. Uh, no. All right. Well, let's let's give it a taste. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. It's. I mean, it smells fuller. I knew it was going to be oh, medium wow, body yeah. because Malbecs are generally medium. Yeah. But the scent, like that smokiness makes me feel like it's going to be a little bit fuller, but it's a nice like medium bodied. I can yeah. see why this is really good with steak and pork. Mm -hmm. It's very, this is an easy drinking wine. Malbecs are. Yeah. That's why I really like them. Like Malbec is a, you could have a bottle and be like, oh shit, I had a bottle. It's been 45 minutes. I guess I drink very quickly. <laughs> 45 minutes, a little quick. Um, but anyway, so we now have our wine, our much-needed wine. Yes. And I want to hear what case you picked because I've been really excited to share mine with you just because mm -hmm. since we did both go to school in Norman and we lived there for... I lived there for six years. You lived there for four. It's very interesting reading about this stuff happening in a city that we know so, so well. Mm -hmm. And while it's not one that we live in anymore, we do still have family there and like um, there and close to there. So it's just, I don't know, it's a little bit eerie to, mm -hmm. to be doing this research. I don't know if you felt that way or uh, not. But... Yeah. So, okay. I'm going to jump into mine. All right. So my case is the 2005 University of Oklahoma bombing. Which I feel like is not that well known outside of OU. No, and that was like the year before I was there. Okay, see, I actually, personally, I thought you were here. No, I started the next year, um, and I was there. It's it's weird because it feels like I was there during this, but people talked about it like mm -hmm. we knew it because it was still very fresh when I yeah. first started and. 
Because they started ramping up security at the stadium. And while I was there was when they thought someone had brought a gun into the stadium. And it turned mm. out to be an umbrella. Okay. And that's why you, you can't. Not the only reason. But I think that was part of the reason why you can't bring umbrellas in the stadium. Oh, that makes sense. That must suck when it rains. Uh, poncho. Oh, fair. Okay. I mean, just think about it. You're at a football game. It's not like you can really open up an umbrella anyway. I know. You'd be that asshole. Yes. In the row and with the people behind you being like, you fucking bitch. Yeah. And you'd be like hitting them with it and blocking people. Oh. Same reason why you don't have an umbrella in Seattle. Yeah. Or I assume New York. I don't know if people umbrella it up. Anyways. So the sources I used were Wikipedia, Fox 25 News, ESPN, NBC News, The Oklahoman, and The Denver Post. Wow, that's an interesting one. On October 1st of 2005, the OU Sooners football team was playing the Kansas State Wildcats at their home stadium, the Oklahoma Memorial Stadium, Mm -hmm. or Gaylord, or Owen Field. There's a bunch of names for it. (laughs) Uh, So the game was a pretty average one. I mean, it was a game. Uh, The second quarter was, you know, turning to a close, and the game was heading towards halftime. OU's up 19 to nothing, and 84,501 fans are in the stadium watching the game. Yeah, just sounds like a normal Saturday in Norman. Yeah, which I also think it's crazy. Stadium regularly has games in the 80s to 90,000, and the... Entire city is 120,000. Yeah. (laughs) Like, so many people go. It's true. So at around 7.30 p.m. that night, an explosion shook the stadium. This explosion was reported as being heard up to five miles away. Dang. But there were people on the east side of the stadium that only heard a rumble, like thunder in the distance, or like, oh, it's gonna rain later. Yeah. kind Like that kind of thunder. So they just had no idea. And a few people in the stadium heard nothing. Which I think is interesting, but it's also during a football game. Football games are very loud. No, it's so true. I'd, I'd be like, oh, okay. I can completely understand why people may have not heard anything. So this blast was centered on a bench in a traffic circle that was about 100 yards from the stadium. Uh, it was just in front of George Lynn Cross Hall, which is one of the... I mean, main halls yep. in uh, on the South Oval. Yep. At, or which is also called the Van Vliet Oval. No one calls it that. It's just the South Oval. I had no idea. Yeah, that's apparently the technical name is the Van Vliet Oval, uh-huh. not Van Fleet, which is what sounds correct. <laughs> Van Vliet. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> that's someone's name. I yeah, and I'm sure they were awesome, but I'm just saying. Anyways. So fans were kept inside the stadium while officers rushed to secure the scene and ensure that there weren't any more explosives. Um, On the remnants of the bench was the body of 21-year-old mechanical engineering student Joel Henry Henricks III. After this explosion happened, there were no announcements made in the stadium until the third and fourth quarters. Yeah. So until the latter half of the game. And the announcement was that bus drivers were asked to leave the stadium and meet at the northwest corner. Because where this happened, the South Oval was where a lot of, like, buses parked. Yep. So they needed to get the bus drivers to be like, yo, one, one of you can't move your bus. There's person on it. Yeah. Two, 
The rest of you need to move your buses now. Yeah. Um, oh, God. Because, again, That would have they, seemed like such a random announcement. Yeah. Think about that. You're in the middle of a football game. They're like, all the drivers of the buses, please report to the South Oval and move them. Yeah. Like that. But they also didn't want to start any kind of panic because if they of made course, an announcement that was like, people. Um, a bomb just blew up 100 yards away, BT dubs, don't use the South Oval. Like, no. No. I, I mean, I totally understand why there was no announcement. Mm-hmm. So during the last six minutes of the game, so this is probably, what, hour and a half after it happened yeah. or so, two hours, yeah. an announcement was made over the PA system at the stadium and over local radio that, you know, to exit through the south and east gate and to avoid the area west of the stadium. There wasn't any th- reason given, but just avoid the area west of the stadium and the south oval. Yeah. Um, which is crazy because you think about it, the students have to all like walk that way. The ones that live in the dorms. Oh yeah, that's. I mean, that's where. That's where you walk. Most people would have walked through to go. Yeah. So, but again, I can all see being like, okay. Like, I know it's right. been like okay, divert. Yeah. So the first reports said the explosive device was made using hydrogen peroxide. Didn't know it. You could use that to make a bomb. But uh, I didn't apparently. either. Uh, but it was later noted that that was only a component of the actual explosive compound that was used. The initial accounts also indicated that a second bomb was found, but those turned out to later be false. Oh. Um, this, the area, the entire area was searched by bomb sniffing dogs and no more explosives were found, thankfully. There was just the one. There was just the one. And the remains of a backpack were found that contained a circuit board, wires, and a battery. Oh, God. And, you know, they find this, you know, they remotely detonate it for safety. Yeah. In case it also has another bomb. Of course. Um, Other items that were found nearby were a wrench, a white sock with wires coming out of it. Oh. A screwdriver, some unused matches, and a chemistry book. Like, maybe that was everything he was holding or something? Everything he was holding or things that were in the bag that were blown out. Yeah. I'm not sure. So, following the explosion, the entire South Oval was marked off-limits with crime scene tape. Yeah. Which, this is a huge thing. The South Oval's probably a quarter of a mile long, and it has maybe... I don't know, 10 separate buildings on each side, and then the library at the other end. I mean, it's... It's huge. It basically, for students, that's campus. Yeah. That's where... That's where the majority of everything half is. half of all the classes and classrooms and everything is. Yeah. It's also where the library is. It's also just north of the dorms. So, I mean, it that's like the heart of the university is all cordoned off with tape. So, fans exited the stadium after the game without incident. And the South Oval was actually opened the next day. Um, except for the immediate area around the explosion. Yeah. Um, but pretty much all that, you know, anyone walking by would see is a shattered glass door. One of the doors to George Lynn Cross blew open. Yep. Um, a bench wasn't there anymore. And, like, some burn marks and a little bit of debris. But so do nothing... people still not really know what happened? They do. They do know? Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, after the investigation and stuff, yes. But people walking by, I mean, unless you remember the bench and are like, why isn't that there anymore? Yeah. You would probably not think. I Honestly, you might think that, like, a car hit the bench or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. you wouldn't think Fair. a bomb went off. But I I think at this point, people knew. Like, it had been reported in the news. And so the area is cordoned off and firefighters are finishing spraying down the area with water to wash away debris, chemicals, and bodily fluids from the sidewalk and the bus that was parked there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Which is horrifying. It's always interesting to think about what really happens in, like, when someone blows up. Because you see it often in movies or TV and it just fire and they're gone. But in reality, again... People have a lot of blood. We've talked about it before, but it's blood and organs. Like, that's everywhere. everywhere. God. Um, Which is horrifying to think about. It is. um, I mean, that, yeah. So, classes resumed as normal on Monday. So, this happened on Saturday. Monday, everything was normal-ish. Yeah, normal, quote-unquote. Yeah. So, none of the spectators of the game were injured, and the only casualty was Joel Henry Henricks III, who was the man that built the bomb. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad he was the only injury. I mean, just because it could have been so much worse. I, yeah, it could have been. It's a bomb. So, who who was Joel Henry Henricks III? Who was this guy? So, he was originally from Colorado Springs. Uh, he was a National Merit Scholar... And oh, that's why there's a Denver Post article. Yeah. Got oh, it. yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. Um, you know, he graduated from Wasson High School in May of 02. His dad described him as a very private individual who had gone through several severe bouts of depression. Uh, Henrik's depression was noted as early as him or as when he was as young as 10. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, and his dad believes that. The underlying cause of all of this was his inability to bond with other people. He couldn't make friendships. Yeah. And that led to his depression. Oh, Um, poor guy. Yeah. He also said that Henriks began counseling at the university's on-campus health center two years earlier. Yeah. Which is awesome. I've used the on-campus counseling health center, like, it is awesome. Yeah. Um, but his dad didn't know if his son was still seeing a counselor and had no idea that his son was feeling suicidal. Yeah. You know, he knew he had a history of depression. Lots of people have history of depression. Lots right. Lots of people have current depression. Like, But he had no idea that it had gotten that bad. Yeah. So Henriks was a member of the Triangle Fraternity. And this is a social fraternity of engineering, science, and architect majors architecture majors and his dad said that you know he had recently moved out of the triangle fraternity house because he didn't bond he didn't relate with the other fraternity members again he wasn't making friends it wasn't working out for him so in the chapter meeting following the bombing the members of the fraternity were asked to direct all questions and comments to one member of the fraternity who was gonna like i guess take the lead on it yeah. And not to discuss anything with the media. Um, just in order to 
limit rumors and other theories and everything. Yeah. So do you know how long before this happened he dropped out? He was still in the fraternity. Um, he had just moved out of the house. Oh, yeah. oh, okay. Sorry. I, I heard when he moved out of the house, like, he was done. He was still no. part of it. Yeah. Right after the bombing happened, there were theories flying around about why this happened. You know, was it suicide? Of course. Or was it a terrorist? Yeah. So, shortly after the blast, university president David Boren said that this was an apparent suicide. He said... We know that he has had what I would call emotional difficulties in the past. There is currently no evidence at this point which points to any other kind of motivation other than his personal problems, which would be a horrifying voicemail to get. At OU, whenever there's important announcements or weather-related stuff or things like this, you get a call from the school and it's David Boren or Debo leaving like this would be a voicemail yeah that would just be a horrifying one yes it would and i'm very glad we never got those uh yeah although i did get one about a bomb threat when i was there i'm sure i did i mean i because i remember we were all in i think it was my algebra class like freshman year and we just weren't allowed to leave for like an hour and a half or two hours I don't know if it's that he just phrased it well enough or if it's just that he's a very calming person, which he is. But when we all got that, we were like, oh, shit. Oh, my God. But it wasn't like a, oh, my God. Okay, something's happening. Yeah. Because this was after, I mean, a lot of high-profile events. Virginia Tech had happened, I think, when I was still in high school. Yeah. Like, so it that wasn't something that we didn't think about that's something that's on your in the back of your mind at all times it is at least for me it was well no i just want to say it's a very unfortunate thing for people in college and just you know any any level of schooling a shooting is unfortunately something that can be on your mind more often than you'd like it to be and how uh, i was actually talking to some friends today about growing up and having active shooter drills. And Mm -hmm. I didn't have that, but I think you did. Mm -hmm. And it's because, you know, Columbine happened in 99 and I was about to go into high school. So it, it was something Mm -hmm. that it didn't really start. I don't remember Mm -hmm. an active shooter drill in high school. I think that's something that came about more so when, when you and Sydney started. Yeah. I had this conversation. um, I know that I brought it up like, 30,000 times that, hey, yo, I was in Norway once. But I had this conversation because a lot of my friends were from all over the globe, but a lot of them were from Europe. And, you know, talking to them like, oh, yeah, we would have active shooter drills, like, you know what to do. And they were like, what the fuck? In your, like, what? In your school? Yeah. And I was like, yeah. No, it like every semester at least you'd have one. In the same way you have a fire drill or a tornado drill, you have an active shooter drill. Because when I was in elementary and I think middle school even, uh, they were just intruder drills. I think I had intruder drills. Which we did have. But then when I was in high school, they became active shooter drills. Yeah. Which was different. Yeah. Like the way they treated them and what you did Mm -hmm. in the classroom was, was very different. Yeah. Because intruder drills... 
I don't even think they would lock the doors of but the classroom. But I think classrooms. you just turn the lights off. You like and turn all the lights off and go to like everyone wall. line up the wall that you can't look into the window. Yep. Active shooter drills. That was when teachers started putting paper. Over all of my classes, teachers would have a strip of paper over the glass oh um, my God. on the door. Really? And most of them would just keep it there. But yeah, so a shooter couldn't look in. And then they'd also That's lock horrifying. the doors. And, oh, yeah. And I've talked about it before how I always have this constant fear of, like, you know, a workplace shooting, even now. That's something that I think about almost every day. Yeah. It's what we live through now in America in the 21st century. You've been closer to that type of situation than than I ever have. Yeah. I mean, earlier this year, there was a shooting in one of our offices. Yep. Um, in another state, and it, it's just, it happened. Like it, it's horrible. Yeah. But, anyways, um, it's just horrible. Yeah. Another reason why we do need gun control and common sense gun laws, but that's apparently a conversation for another time. Oh wait, no, it's a conversation for right now. Yeah. But yeah. I'm gonna actually not right now because I'm getting back into this. But <laughs> I get what you're saying. So according to local media, Henricks had inquired about purchasing large quantities of ammonium nitrate, Mm -hmm. which ammonium nitrate is a fertilizer that was used as the main ingredient in the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. I knew it. Mm -hmm. Oh my god. I had forgotten that that was a tie. Yeah. Which, that's another thing. So, ammonium nitrate used to be something that you could just go to the the, feed the farm store, store yeah. and, and just get bags and bags of it because it's like farm fertilizer. Yeah. Uh, after the Oklahoma City bombing, that changed. Yes. Like you, it your purchases. I think like the FBI tracks it and like so that you're not getting mass quantities. Oh yeah. And he asked about this at a local feed store two days before the explosion. So, while he's in this feed store, an off-duty Norman police officer was in the store and overheard this conversation between the owner and Henrik's and is oh like, gosh. uh, the fuck? Like, why does this You are clearly this? not a farmer. Yeah. Um, so, the officer followed Henrik's out of the store, checked his license plate, and began an investigation when his shift started. Oh, my gosh. He was like, gosh. I'm going to look into this, see what's going on. And that investigation was actually still in progress when the bomb went off. When it happened. But as part of the investigation, you know, he does his computer check, which showed no outstanding arrest warrants or criminal record for Henrik's. You know, he hadn't, he was, he wouldn't have been on anyone's radar. Right, right. You would not have guessed that he was doing this. So after more investigation, the explosive was found not to be hydrogen peroxide, but... Instead, he had detonated triacetone triperoxide. Okay. Or TATP, which is a very unstable compound. So, according to a Norman Bomb Squad agent, Henrik's had between two and three pounds of TATP in the bag that was in his lap. Whoa. Before the explosion went off. Definitely not all of that went off. Right. Because you can look on YouTube. At, yeah, that sounds like a lot. It is. You, you can look at YouTube videos of TATP explosions and see, like, a lot of, there's a lot of videos of, like, 100 grams, which is 
not a lot, not anywhere near three pounds. Yeah. Um, and it's a big explosion. And it sounds like if all three would have went off, it would have done a lot more damage than just him, the bench, and like the door and stuff. Yeah. So when investigators entered Henrik's apartment the morning after the explosion, they found more TATP. Oh, geez. And the necessary chemicals to make even more of it. And since TATP becomes more unstable as time passes... <gasps> oh, gosh. The Norman police and the FBI had to evacuate his building and four other apartment buildings, just as a precaution. A suicide note was also displayed on his open laptop monitor. Oh, my and God. When, so when the FBI comes in, displayed on the computer screen, like highlighted the words, fuck all of this. None of you are worth living with. You can all kiss my ass. Whoa. Which is like, that part doesn't necessarily sound just like a suicide letter. No. It goes back and forth, and I'll get in more detail of like, what were his motives? Because yeah. he's dead. You can't you can't ask him what his motives were. Right. And I'm sure there's a lot of unknowns that will always be unknown. Yeah. So Henriks, like I said earlier, had been a National Merit Scholar but he had recently lost that status due to his dropping grades. Yeah. And just before the game that night, there was a ceremony that was held in honor of the university's National Merit Scholars. So he oh. was not in a good place emotionally. Right, right. Yeah. Hendricks had also told friends and fraternity brothers that he liked explosives, and he frequently experimented with building and detonating bombs made oh. out of uh, plastic soda bottles, which to me is not a red flag at all. Um, like a 20-year-old guy making like little, like I'm imagining like a toilet cleaner bomb and stuff. What is in that? It's like toilet cleaner, balls of foil, you like close oh, it off, I throw have, it. Like, I have heard of that. Like in cases like that, like where it's not really a bomb bomb, it's just more of a, I, I get it. Because, like, a tw- yeah. a 21-year-old guy being like, I like explosions and fucking with shit. Like, okay. That's not... Right. No, I get it. That's not that surprising. Uh, and but he's also you... a mechanical engineer, so, you know, he probably likes making the stuff. Right. But... That's where it gets there, a little yeah. bit where it's like, well, then he knows how to take it further. Exactly. Because there, there is a difference from making, like, a... Aha, this two liter Pepsi bottle is going to burst and make a big ass sound and a bomb. Yes. Um, so he took detailed records of many of his experiments he performed, and he did most of them at the Red Rock Canyon uh, National Park, which I have been to dozens yeah. of times. Same. Um, and along with the chemicals in the suicide note, the FBI and police also found used artillery shells, spent bullets, belts made of used brass shell casings, and military ammunition boxes. Whoa, so he liked ammo. Yeah. Again, Oklahoma guy liking explosions and guns. Not out of the Not ordinary. a red flag. We're getting into yellow flag territory, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, actually, if someone tells me they're really into guns and has a lot of stuff, that is an instant red flag. They're like, okay, we're done here. But yes, a... that type of red flag, yes. Yeah. But, like, as far as, like, this dude's going to do something, not necessarily. Right. You know, wouldn't... It, I mean, I can count 
off the top of my head, a bunch of people I knew in high school that loved explosions and guns. Yeah. It, it's Oklahoma. Same. Um, so other items that were taken in the search included a thermometer, a slow cooker, rolls of tape, mixing bowls, and plastic containers. Where he put it all together? Yep. Yeah. So... Henrik's roommate met Henrik's when, because he's, you know, he's in the apartment after he left the fraternity house. He got his own, he got an apartment with yeah. a roommate. His roommate met him when he placed an ad online for looking for a roommate and Henrik's responded. So Henrik's moved in with this roommate. Yeah. So the two of them did not socialize. Right. And although Henrik's had shown the remains of one of his detonated explosive devices to a fraternity brother, yeah, uh, his roommate was completely unaware of his interest in explosives. Oh, oh, so they really didn't talk. Which and I guess, I don't know, if there's someone that I'm not really friends with and don't really know, it's probably not something I'd talk about them while mm-hmm. I'm in the kitchen heating up my ramen. Fair. And of course... Because people are racist pieces of shit. His roommate immediately became suspected because for being involved. The evidence for this of like, <gasps> the roommate's involved. is because the roommate was Muslim. Oh my god. Yeah. Fucking. Yeah. Because I'm going to get into a lot of the profiling and fucking bullshit that the police, FBI, and public did. Yeah. And it enrages me so fucking much yeah because it's a goddamn religion it's just a religion and a culture that's it it's literally a religion of peace yeah and i mean the profiling is it's it's crazy and it's something that ever since 9-11 it's happens all the time and it's it makes me nauseous and sick i hate it and there are so many more muslim people that are victims of hate crimes and are attacked and fucking discriminated against and all this because of their religion. So much more of that happens than any kind of terror attack. Yeah. So there was already speculation among a lot of people that Henriks was Muslim. Uh, but be after the news that he had a Pakistani roommate came out it ignited louder rumors that he was an Islamic convert and had become radicalized and was a terrorist because, you know, he has a roommate from Pakistan. So obviously, Yeah. So Ashraf Hussein, who was the president of OU's Muslim Student Association, said that he had never seen Henriks at a mosque and he did not believe Henriks was a Muslim. But as many as eight people, including Hakim Mansouri, who's an OU student, Mm -hmm. Jamal Rabil, who's another OU student, and six others, including the OU Arabic language teacher, Hossam Barakat, were detained by the Norman Police Department. What? uh, For questioning. What? Yeah. Why? Because they're Muslim. That's literally why. I know. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's fucking garbage. There's no reasoning behind that. It pisses me off so much that this, you know, the president of OU's Muslim Student Association has to say that, oh, you know, we've never seen him. I don't believe he's a Muslim. That doesn't have any fucking any part of this. 
That that would be like them having to interview all the cafeteria workers being like, no, I don't think he ate pasta. I don't <laughs> it's it's not related. There's no yeah. part of it that has anything to do with him uh, blowing himself up like that. Um, but after the questioning, um, the eight individuals were cleared of suspicion because of Good. fucking course they were. They, they didn't do anything. Yeah. Nothing to do with it. So after all of the investigation and, you know, they know who it is, they're trying to figure out everything. The question still remains of were his intentions just the death of himself? Yeah, or just suicide. did he want to harm others? Yeah. So... OU President David Boren noted that Henricks waited until the game was underway and pregame fans and students had all cleared the South Oval. Yeah, that he was pretty secluded. Yeah, there would have been a lot more casualties, deaths and injuries to bystanders if he had detonated the device in the same area either before or after the game. Yeah, so it Again, wasn't like we like talked a, about like everyone's around there. Oh yeah, because he it could have been before or after. It's not a case of like oh maybe he got there late and had to do it. The could he, if he had waited an hour and a half and that his goal was to get victims could have done that. He would have waited. Yeah. yeah. In July of two thousand six, so almost a year after, the FBI formally declared that there was no evidence that Hendricks was a terrorist. Uh, over two hundred witnesses were interviewed about the event, and no indications were found that Hendricks was an extremist, had extremist views, or was working with anyone else to make and explode the bomb. Yeah. He was, was, just, was him. just him. It's interesting that after this... Because it is a very big deal that he did have mental health issues. And that's yeah. not something you should ignore. But it really pisses me off that the second it was like, oh... Don't worry, he wasn't a terrorist. It was like, oh, well, then the poor guy's mental health. Because you know that is because he's white. Like, that wouldn't be a conversation that happened if he was a person of color, which is another... A whole other... Yeah. It just makes me mad that people are only willing to talk about mental health in the public forum when a white person does something and it's like, oh, my God, see, this is why we need more help for people. Whereas if a person of color does the exact same thing, they're either a terrorist or a gangster or this monster. Or just crazy, because which is a horrible word to yeah. use to describe another individual. Because uh, mental health uh, issues affect everyone, regardless of the color of your skin yeah. or your background. Like it, And it's a conversation we should be having a lot more. Not just when bad things happen. It should just be a conversation. Some witnesses did say at the time that Henriks had attempted to gain access to the stadium, but was turned away. So the FBI reviewed all the security camera videos and found them all to be negative of him. Like he he was not, he did not show up in any of the camera footage. Um, He wasn't a student football season ticket holder. There was no evidence that he had tried to enter the stadium, and he had apparently neither bought nor tried to buy a game ticket. Um, The agents looked at hundreds of hours of the security camera tapes and could not find him in any of them. Yeah. But it is also important to note that not all of the entrances had cameras, 
So they did oh. concede that they might never know if he wanted to enter or had tried to enter the game. Right. You know, they had no evidence that he did, but it was impossible to prove he did not. Got it. Which... Makes sense. I mean, tells me that he probably didn't, especially if he didn't buy a ticket. Like, because this is before um, and why bag checks at the stadium were a thing. Yeah. This, because of this, is why they now search your bags at the stadium. Well, and, and because now, of other high-profile events. But before this, you could walk in with your backpack and... No, like, so yeah. I find it hard to believe that he would have tried to enter. Yeah. Well, and now it's like a wristlet or a clear bag. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, they've even they've gotten even stricter since we were there. Yeah. In July of 2016... The FBI released unsealed files uh, to news sources that related to the bombing. So, 10 years after it happened. Wow. Agents that were investigating Henricks turned to the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, or the BAU. Yeah. And the profilers with the BAU said that their review of the case indicated that Henricks may have meant to kill other people with his bomb. The BAU analysis that was included in the report made no mention of him being the sole intended target of the bomb. Oh, so he potentially did want to harm others. Potentially. Records show that Henricks had been referred for counseling in 2003, so two years before this. Yeah. But the report redacted any details about what he may have been thinking or planning. So it's possible that he could have been planning this for a long time. Possible that it... So it's just unclear. Yeah. And Sergeant George Malden, who's a Norman police bomb expert, said, I believe he accidentally blew himself up. Accidentally? Accidentally. And when he was asked if he believed Henrik's meant to enter the stadium with the explosives, Malden said... I don't believe he intended for an explosion to occur at that spot on the bench where he was. Yeah. Someone saw him fiddling with the backpack shortly before the explosion (gasps) occurred. I think he got cocky and it went off. Oh. So he also very well could have been, like, getting it in place, setting it up before going into the stadium or something. Right. So that Maybe planning on being at it during halftime. I don't know. Yeah. And it just went off. But... In all likelihood, it could have just been him suicide. Like, yeah. That's how he wanted to go. Ultimately, while the evidence that was reported by the FBI indicates that Henricks was potentially a threat to others, there's nothing conclusive to point one way or the other. Right. So uh-huh. it really is like an either-or situation. Yeah. And one thing I remember seeing in a news broadcast, about, I think it was a news broadcast about it, which I could not find because I remember seeing this like when it was happening yeah. on the news. Um, it was an interview with the bus driver of the bus that was closest. Yeah. Uh, he had just either like he had had to get something out of the bus or maybe he was taking a smoke break by the bus. But he was the last person to see Hendrix because he saw him on the bench with his backpack. Yeah. And so he saw him. I think he said like hi or something. Did what he was doing and walked away, and then Hendrix blew up. So oh, he was saying that God. he's convinced that Hendrix did not want to hurt anyone else, 
because yeah. he was right there and Hendrix waited until he was out of the way before, before he blew up. Detonating it. Oh yeah. my god. So on April 26th of 2007, the University of Oklahoma put a patio stone that was engraved with Hendrix's name outside of the student union. Y'all don't know this if y'all have never been to OU. Outside of the student union, there's like a big seating and like eating area and stuff. Yeah. And there's a bunch of patio stones with people's names on it. Yep. And they're memorial stones or like people donated to the university, things like that. Um, a lot of people will um, buy them as like memorials for loved ones who've died who went to OU or were close with the university, yeah, yeah. things like that. So the OU Student Affairs Division arranged to have the stone placed. And officials again said that families usually pay for such memorials. But Henrik's father said that OU offered to place the stone for oh, him wow. and never build him. Henrik's father traveled from Colorado to Oklahoma to visit with the university officials after um, Henrik's death. Yeah. And said that OU's dean of students offered to have the stone placed. He said that the dean very kindly understood that Joel's act was one of loneliness, not of aggression, and offered to have the stone placed in the memorial courtyard. He also indicated that the wife of the university president might select a tree to be placed on campus, also in Joel's memory. Oh my gosh. Um, which Devo's wife... To, she took care of like the flowers and trees and did all of that. That yeah. was like, her passion project. Um, in a statement, David Boren said, As is well known, the death of Joel Henricks III was an apparent suicide. A tree was not planted on campus. Instead, the university gives the opportunity for those who desire to purchase pavers in the Union Courtyard for students, graduates, or friends of the university. Some are given to honor graduates or friends of the university, and some are given as memorials. They are paid for by those who have them placed there, and the proceeds go towards the upkeep of the student union. The university tries to be sensitive to all the families who have lost sons or daughters while they were students. It's just so classy of Devo. It is. Because I personally very strongly believe that it was suicide. I think on a crowded college campus. That's what it seems like. Yeah, if, he would have had so many opportunities to yeah. injure a lot of people if that was his intent. Yeah, like it. To me, if his goal was to hurt other people, he would have had a lot more opportunities. Yeah. Um, also, he was very clearly experienced with making bombs and testing them out in the canyon, things like that. So I can't imagine he would have accidentally moved something and caused it to go off. To detonate off. before I, he was ready. Yeah. Because yeah. even getting to the canyon is like an hour drive from OU. I mean, it's not. So if, yeah. if, if he's good enough at it to make sure they don't go off on a bumpy road or a dirt canyon road, I can't imagine. That's a really good point that this would have been an accident. Yeah. But. Wow. The, what's crazy is I was there for a, a lot of the investigation and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I don't remember a lot about this. 
Yeah. And granted, I was a freshman, and it was something that happened prior to my time being there, but I guess I just didn't pay attention. Uh, I also think it was one of those that we're very prone to focus on things that have high death tolls. And I think that even though it was an explosion at OU, because only one person died, it wasn't as big a deal. Well, and also because it's not like the investigation was happening on campus day in and day out. Like That's it's fair. not something yeah. that was visible to students that hadn't have, you know, that weren't there when it happened. And mm-hmm. um and and not not being there when it happened and not having that reminder. Yeah. I can see why maybe I didn't really know a ton. I mean, because to be completely honest, when I was like 19 years old, 18, 19, wasn't watching the news. No. Like, that just, that wasn't something I did during the time. I would read the OU Daily, but even then, I don't think this is something they would be reporting on. Oh, I'm sure they would. Not as, I mean, yes, I feel like they reported on it, but do you think it's something that, like, like there'd be like weekly updates. Oh or no, like, no, no! Like no, it wouldn't no. be something that would be prevalent enough for someone who's not an avid reader. Yeah, to, no, that's fair. To yeah. see it is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, they absolutely do great investigations. What's you'll know a little bit more here in a moment why I'm saying this, but um, uh, but yeah, yeah, I um, it's interesting because I didn't really get into reading the news every single day until my early twenties. Yeah. Because I, I still do, like, as part of my morning routine, I'll read CNN, the Austin News, and then I'll check out the Seattle and the Oklahoma City News. Yeah. Um, I don't do that like many, but... I don't do, look up. I don't do that many, but I definitely pay well, attention to news daily. The Seattle is because I miss it. The Oklahoma City is because um, there's this one uh, writer who works for the Oklahoman... Steve Lackmeyer, he does... I knew that's who you were going to say. Yep, yeah, Steve. He does all of the, like, downtown, like, news, so all of the, you know, big things happening downtown. And he also does a weekly chat that I really like, because it's things like, what are your thoughts on, you know, public transportation in the city? Or, I don't know, things that interest me. Yeah. Um, But that's, like, the only... Thing I watch or I read the Oklahoma for, yeah. but I make sure to check out the Austin one in CNN every day. Yeah, wow, that's that was an intense story. Yeah, and it was I knew about it. I didn't know that much about it. I didn't it. know that much about it either. So mine is another murder that happened in Norman. It's actually yeah. a double homicide. Oh, mine happened in 1970, and it's the murders of David Sloan and Cheryl Benham. I have never heard of this. I hadn't either. And this case is so twisted that I couldn't believe it. Um, So the sources I used, I actually only used one. So the OU Daily, which I said earlier, was the campus newspaper. Mm -hmm. They did a project called Lover's Lane. And it was a podcast. And it's five different episodes. And Is it like on iTunes? It's on SoundCloud. Oh. And it is called Uncovered. It was done so beautifully that I I heavily, heavily referenced it as in, like I said, it was the only podcast or the only source that I used. So I just found it on uh, 
iTunes, Apple Podcast. Let me see and make sure it's... Uh... Yeah, it's... And yep, it has that's the names. it. So, interestingly, it's from October of this year. Oh, it's wait, they old. really yeah. just did it? And Here, let me see this. Yeah. Also, y'all, if you like Britney's case, also go listen to this. They only have 11 ratings. Yeah, absolutely listen to it. It's it's super awesome. Like, major shout out to the OU Daily for doing this. And thank you for um, sharing your information. So it was the 70s. And um, if you remember, we talked to this a little bit with Detective Sergeant Jason Moran in our last episode. Mm-hmm. Or in a few, excuse me, in a few episodes ago. Yeah. And about how, you know, people were, they had a very free spirit. There was the war going on in Vietnam. There were protests. Mm-hmm. Um, on May 4th of that year... There was the big riot in Kent State, um, in Ohio. The Kent State Massacre. Yes, where four students were killed, nine were wounded. So there's a lot going on at this time. And at the University of Oklahoma on the 5th, the Student Association gathered. Did you know, sorry to interrupt, did you know that I think it was Urban Outfitters had a sweater a couple years ago that caused huge controversy what was it it was a sweater that looked like a um not a letterman jacket but like a school sweater it said kent state and it had red stains all over it what the fuck is wrong with our oh my god yeah i just pulled up a picture of it but it's a kent state university sweater that is clearly like look Bloody. meant to look bloodstained and it so fucked up i feel like i just boycotted urban outfitters i mean not that I shopped there. I, do, I can't like, afford it, but that's so fucked up. That's so messed up. That's, okay. Yeah. So that had just happened. And on May 5th, the day after at the University of Oklahoma, the Student Association gathered hundreds of students to protest not only the war, but also the actions of law enforcement in Ohio. So this is a very chaotic time, but for, you know, two people amid all of this chaos, David Sloan and Cheryl Benham. They're preparing for their first date. Or a date. Oh. Cheryl met David at Steak and Ale, which is a restaurant in Oklahoma City where they both happen to work. I think it's still there. I'm pretty sure it is. Because I have never been there, but I know that name. Oh, yeah. No, I'm pretty sure it's still there. It's in Oklahoma City. And David was a student at OU. He came from Amarillo, Texas in 1966. Those are some weird connections to us. I know. There's a <laughs> lot of odd connections in here. It gets even weirder. Um, he was described as honorary, but very well-liked and friendly. He had a tennis scholarship the first couple years he was at OU. Um, tall, thick brown hair, lean, like, attractive man. He was a part of the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity, and he was planning to graduate that upcoming December, and he was getting a degree in business administration, and then he was commissioned through the Naval ROTC. So at this time, he's 21 years old. So he's a pretty young graduate. Yeah, absolutely. um, Cheryl graduated from Putnam City High School in 1969, and she still lived in Oklahoma City with her parents and her older sister, Linda, and Linda's oldest son. She was very outgoing, fun, and their family was a very tight-knit family, and she was 19 years old. Yeah. So, on Saturday, May 9th, 1970, David picks up Cheryl at her Oklahoma City home, and they drive to Norman to go to a fraternity party at Dave's fraternity. 
They stayed at the frat house for a few hours, hanging out with some friends, having some beers, like yeah. very college stuff. Yeah. Like this is a very normal college night, date, date night. Mm-hmm. They leave the fraternity house about 1130 that night and they went to a place in Western Norman known as Lover's Lane. And at, at this point in time, in 1970, it was still just farmland and brush. Now it's, you know, a neighborhood. I always, maybe I just wasn't popular in high school, which I absolutely was not. But I I feel like all these towns have, like, Lover's Lane, Make Out Point and stuff. Literally have never heard of any of these. I know some people went to, like, Lake Arcadia to make out, but that just sounds gross. It really does. But when you're young and you're wanting to find some privacy, that's how you do it. Why didn't you just do it in the Walmart parking lot like everyone else? So, that's gross. Um, (laughs) So, this place was private enough for young couples to park their cars and be very intimate with one another. So, the two of them stayed there for an unknown amount of time until they were interrupted. Oh, so, Sunday, the next day, happened to be Mother's Day. Oh. Early in the morning, Cheryl's dad drove to Norman to speak with police and report her missing because she never came home. And she was not the type of girl that would, you know, stay out with a boy. Like, this yeah. wasn't... Like, they were worried. There was cause for concern. Absolutely. Um, Linda, who was Cheryl's old, older sister by a couple of years, stayed with her mom at the house in Oklahoma City. Cheryl's mom, after, you know, I guess just continuing to get worried throughout the day, actually calls David's mom. And as soon as they got off the phone, David's mom was headed from Amarillo to Norman because something was going on. Something's not right. Mama needs to be there. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. This did happen to be the only time the Sloan family did come to Norman during the case. You know, they wanted to be there to help, help with the murder case. Yeah. Um... But they really also just wanted to move on. Like, it was something they didn't want to to focus on. Um, Cheryl's family started thinking of different possibilities of what possibly could have happened. You know, maybe she'd been drugged. Maybe the war protests that were going on from earlier in the week. um, You know, there had been some more rioting that started. And when David's mom arrived at the house... Linda then decides that, you know what, she's going to go to Norman and she's going to see if she can find... You know, try to help find Cheryl. Absolutely. Well, on Monday, Linda goes to the police station to ask some questions. And, you know, she walks in and she's telling the officers, like, hey, my sister's missing. Just trying to see if I can help, see if I can find some info. They're like, what's your sister's name? And once she says her sister's name, she's like, oh, it's Cheryl Benham. The officers are like, you need to go home. What? And so she calls her dad. She's like... Dad, like, what's going on? I was just a police. They're telling me to go home. And he's like, you know, you you need to come home. They found Cheryl. And so she's like, oh, my God, this is so great. They found her. Well, I mean, yeah, they found her. Oh, God. So almost two days later, um, again, this is Monday, David and Cheryl's belongings were found, dropped in and around David's car. He had a 1966 Pontiac GTO. There was an old pool cue that had been broken in half that was in the front seat. The car was riddled with bullet holes. Oh, my God. And inside the trunk were the bodies of David and Cheryl, shot and mutilated. What the fuck? Yeah. 
Things that happened that we had no idea happened in Norman. Oh my god. That sounds like some fucking mafia, like, Vegas mobster type shit. Yeah, I mean, the fact that the car was riddled with bullet holes. Yeah. Like, that is not something that's common even in, like, a brutal murder. Like, that's just like, what? So police started investigating where Cheryl and David could have been right after Cheryl's dad uh, filed a missing persons report. Mm -hmm. And they ended up speaking to an ex-girlfriend of David's who said that they sometimes went to 10-mile flats, which um, was the area known as Lover's Lane. Mm -hmm. That was their official name of it. So when the police got there, the crime scene had been swept clean. And this is when they finally found the car. But there was no murder weapon, no footprints, no tire tracks. And since this is the 70s, DNA testing went around, so the police had very few options to go off of. Oh, my God. It blows my mind. Because when I think about stuff before DNA, I'm like, fuck, it must have been easy to get away with murder back in the 70s and before. But then all these cases that are still solved, I'm like, fuck. The detectives and police officers, that's fucking incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There were, however, some personal belongings strewn around the car, like a bracelet that Ken Jacobson, who was the OSBI, which is the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, Mm -hmm. um, officer, he found and gave back to Cheryl's parents. It was her bracelet. David's keys, wallet, and shoes were all missing, which is a odd he didn't have any of those but there were also bullet casings almost 30 of them scattered around the dirt and the brush around the car Jeez. and david and cheryl were each shot at least 10 times holy shit the car again had multiple bullet holes through the rear of the car and the trunk and this these bullet casings were their only physical evidence in the entire case and they were from a twenty-two caliber weapon. Please tell me they were at least, like, dead before they were mutilated. I mean, I think they were just mutilated by the sheer number of gunshot wounds. Fair. I mean, God. they were at least shot ten times apiece. God. So, again, OSBI agent Ken Jacobson said, and, and I want to read this quote because it was very interesting and I didn't want to try to, like, dwindle this down. The reason a twenty two was used is because you can't do any type of ballistics on them like you can with larger guns. The only thing we had to work with was the shell casing that had been ejected and the firing pin makes a distinct impression on the shell casing. And this one was unusual. But we could never match them. But again... A guy has knowledge of firearms would pick a twenty two to use. All you have to worry about is the firing pin, and if you throw the gun in the river, the evidence is gone. Whoever did that knew about crime scenes and knew about firearms. They knew what they were doing, and they did a good job as far as cleaning everything up. So... Oh my god, who could have... Someone knows what they're doing. Yeah. So after finding the car and the bodies, officers from all of the agencies came together to sweep the area. They walked up and down the field, finding just more bullets, mostly. And the next few days were just absolute chaos. The police department brought in dozens of suspects, potential witnesses, family members, and friends to interview. They took in Cheryl's ex-boyfriend for questioning. You know, they'd just broken up a few months prior. But Jacobson said he wasn't the type to commit a murder. 
They arrested a man who was picked up on the side of the road in a different town because someone reported him as having blood all over his clothes, but he was found not to be involved with the case at all. David's fraternity went out to search the field as well, but they didn't find anything helpful. They did set up a reward fund, um, raising thousands of dollars to give to anyone who could provide helpful details. Jacobson said the calls flooded in, but every single one of them just led to a dead end, except for one call that came in a few days later. Oh. The call came from a TV station in Amarillo, Texas. A reporter there had a tip about someone on Norman's police force, someone who was known as a bad apple, and his name was Frank Gilly. I feel like I've heard that name before, actually. Well. Maybe I just think I have. I don't know. I don't know either. So Frank was known for messing with Lover's Lane couples. And the police started checking into him and found out that he was actually on probation and should have never been hired by the Norman Police Department in the first place. How did this TV station Amarillo know this? Well, I'm about to get into that. Okay. But um, like I said, he was on probation. And another thing that Jacobson said is that, you know, when they were at the crime scene, because Frank, again, is on the police department, they're in Norman, and Frank made a couple of comments after the bodies were taken out of the car. There's, you know, all these officers lining up, trying to find something, and he goes, I knew that smart punk in Amarillo, the victim, David. Oh. He He knew David. And at the time, Jacobson is just like, that's a really cold statement. Like, he just, we just, this guy just got taken out of the trunk and he was yeah. Yeah, just shot a couple dozen times or so. Dead. Like, why are you, why are you saying that? Unfortunately, once this call came in from the Amarillo TV station, Gilly was gone. When officers are tipped off to start investigating Gilly as a su- suspect in this double homicide, uh, the Norma police force, they, they split into two separate groups and they're working against one another. Ones who think he might have something to do with it, and ones that are defending him. Oh, okay. because I mean, I mean, he was, he's one he of them. Tired, he's yeah. one of them, and so it's it's one of those when you turn on someone in your force, even if it's the new guy, there's going to be a division. Absolutely. There happened to be a boy in Amarillo that witnessed a crucial altercation that involved Frank Gilly. So, this guy had been dropped off at a party in late May, um, early June of 1968. So, a couple years prior to this double homicide. And later in the evening, he gets into a fight with another one of the party members. And Gilly comes over and, like, pulls him off. And um, at this time, he works as a sheriff's deputy at for Potter County there in Amarillo. Yeah. So... The, I'm getting into, like, how this Amarillo T reporter knew okay. who Gilly was. So, yeah, okay. So, Gilly makes several remarks to this 18-year-old that he arrested. One remark is he didn't like his face. Um, and then they get upstairs, you know, I guess they're filling out paperwork after this kid had been brought into the station. And Gilly asked the boy how much money he had, and the boy said $10. And Gilly asked him another question, and the boy answered it. And the boy said, but wait, you didn't, you didn't put down my $10. And then Gilly's like, are you accusing me of stealing your $10? Gilly then jumps up, grabs the boy by the shoulders, shoved him against the wall, banged his head against the wall several times. What the f- 
So Gilly was taken before a grand jury in Amarillo and indicted, given a suspended sentence, and put on probation for aggravated assault. Probation? Yeah. It was deemed a misdemeanor. However, he resigned and worked for... um, Oh, that kind of probation. Sorry, I was thinking, like, he was just put on probation from the police force. Like, oh, you gotta do desk duty now. But no, 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 no. like, legal probation, like, he has to check with a probation officer. Okay. Yeah, he's on probation, and he ends up somehow just leaving Amarillo and getting hired at the Norman Police Department, which, oh obviously, if you're on probation, you are not allowed to be an acting officer. Well, fuck, I can imagine it's a lot easier before... Well, because it's the 60s, I can imagine it's a lot easier to, you know, they're they not going to be able to look you up, do a background check on you. Really. No, they, they can. Well, they but can. But this is a who you know situation. Yeah. Oh. So, no one at the Norman Police Department knew there was a new guy start, starting. Turns out, Gilly and Police Chief Bill Hensley, who was Norman PD Police Chief... They went way back, and they had worked on multiple cases together. Oh. So, Hensley didn't do a background check. He didn't. He oh just hired him. Investigators on the case soon discovered that Gilly had HR been... department. It's true. It is true. Anyway. Do police offices have HR departments? Yeah. I mean, oh, well, I mean, the so. city does. And I would assume that's who does um, HR for them, would be like the city HR department. That would make sense. But um, investigators on the case soon discovered that Gilly had been hired by Hensley with no background check, no fingerprints. Mm. And they were told that was the doing those things were normal hiring steps. So they were just completely skipped. Um, Hensley claimed that he got some letter of recommendation from Gilly's old bosses. But Jacobson, the OSBI agent, said when the detectives asked him to show them, like, show them the letter, he couldn't find it. However, okay. a couple days later, he suddenly produces the letter. So he which, wrote it. Well, it's he probably called a guy. It's very much suspected that he called a guy in Amarillo to write in the letter and like post date it. So he's just trying to cover his or backdate it, not post date it. Yeah, but back-date. he's just trying to cover his ass. When yeah. two people were murdered. Well, and it's... Well, I guess they're, they're still looking to see if he did do it, but... Right. But it's... Right now, it's more of, like, Hensley covering his ass because he just hired someone that has assault charges. And, like, it's unclear at this time if he knew about those assault charges or not, but... Either way, he's shit and probably should have been fired. Absolutely. Well, either way, Hensley is... He's a little bit worried, so he agreed to give Gilly a polygraph test. And, you know, the case investigators did not know this test was happening. Gilly took the test four days after the bodies were found. And after the test, Hensley reported that Gilly was innocent. Polygraph proved it. Oh, and yeah. Polygraphs, they totally are reliable. Then next thing we know, Gilly packs his bags, resigns from the force that same day, and leaves. Wait, so is was that that was the tip off to Gilly that they think it's him? Was this polygraph test? I guess, but Hensley's on his side. I know. So Hensley's like, dude, they think it's you. Let's do the polygraph test. So of course Gilly's gonna be like, I'm gonna get the fuck out of here now. Well, and I think Hensley probably helped him get out of what town. The- well, and Hensley's 
dealing with the embarrassment of the fact that he just hired someone with an assault charge. Okay. He's the police chief. Hiring someone with an assault charge, helping someone escape a murder charge, are very different things. Well. He is, uh, shit. You also have to remember, Hensley and Gilly are friends. They have known each other and worked together for a long time. You're telling me that you're going to turn your back on one of your good friends. I'm not trying to defend him, but no, I'm just I saying, know. like, I... I'm barely into this. And trust me, it gets way more twisted. Okay. But I'm just saying, like, That's, Hensley is friends is, with him. That is fair. And it goes along the same, like, you know, you don't accuse your co-officers of things. I know, it sounds like a lot of that, like, bro-y bullshit, but okay. Gilly obviously feels like there's a plot against him um, in the department. So by June of 1970, Gilly is stating that there's clearly a plot against him from his department, and that the assault charges and even the call from the Amarillo TV station were retaliation for a contentious sheriff election that had happened in Amarillo in 1968. Not fair. And um, Hensley backed him, saying that Gilly was not the type of man to commit serious crimes. Okay. I know. I know. I mean, do you ever meet someone that you're like, mm-hmm, that's the kind of friend who would murder? No. I mean, I think some people do, but maybe they're not necessarily the best of I mean, friends fair, to hang out but with. Like, <laughs> I mean, when we went over Bundy, he had his bestie who was in working in the Seattle, like, police dispatch office who was like, no. Even after I knew he did it, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So, this explanation that Gilly was being framed ended up being somewhat of the official stance of the police department in Norman, that he was just being framed. But there were agents like Ken Jacobson that did not believe that, and they kept investigating. And... All of these coincidences and his connection to the David and Cheryl murders just kept piling up. Investigators got character statements. Uh, One said Gilly's very capable of committing such an act of which he is being investigated by your department. So, like, you know, he totally could have done that. Yeah. Um, Supposedly, he liked to run gullies, which is a slang term for going to all the different lovers' lanes and harassing the teens. What the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Investigators started to hear rumors that Gilly had an obsession with lovers' lanes. And, again, that's where David and Cheryl were found. Yeah. Originally, Gilly's wife served as his alibi for the night of the murders, but she recanted. Now... They still need to find the freaking murder weapon. They have yeah. no idea where this murder weapon is. One officer said that Gilly carried a twenty-two pistol in his car to kill rabbits. It turns out he had multiple twenty-twos, rifles, pistols. There were some in his locker. Um, he said the rifle was his wife's. So another thing that happened in June, which is about a month after he left the force, another couple complained about a cop harassing them at Lover's Lane. You know, the woman said that the cop told her, you know, he was asking all these questions about, like, are you a virgin? Are you not? Just stuff like that. And he told the woman if she went out into the woods and took off all her clothes, he wouldn't take her to jail. What the fuck? Yeah. So just, like, seriously sadistic, like, what the fuck is going on with this cop supposedly Uh, doing it? Yeah. Slowly, multiple other young couples started coming forward. They told similar stories. 
And the police would show photo lineups of officers to the couples and ended up with seven couples, so a total of 14 people, that picked Gilly's picture out of the lineup and claimed that he was the one that harassed them on Lover's Lane. Shit. But since Gilly was being protected by all of his police buddies, there was very little that could be done. I mean, they covered for one another. Yeah. Like, so there, there was just corruption in the police department. Absolutely. A few months into the investigation, detectives did convince Hensley to give Gilly a second polygraph test. Even though Gilly lived in Amarillo, Hensley was saying that they would take the polygraph test in Lubbock. So they all hop in a car from Oklahoma and Amarillo, and they all meet in Lubbock. And, okay. of course, Gilly Pass, the ranger who gave him the test, one of Hensley's buddies. So, again, it's like, oh was it legit? God. Was it not? We don't know. Investigators just kept digging, and they eventually secured a warrant to search Gilly's home in Amarillo in December of 1970. They did find a 22 in his house, but the ballistics did not match. Investigators did believe they reached a tipping point in March of 71, so we're closing in on a year since the murders, Yeah. when they persuaded a district attorney to bring Gilly in on charges of impersonating an officer um, you know, at Lover's Lanes, because... At that point in time, he had left the force, so he yeah. was impersonating an officer. Uh, Gilly was brought to the Amarillo police station, had his mugshot taken, but nothing really ever came of it. He was released. God. It wasn't until 1972 Fuck. that the case seemed that it might start picking back up again. Cheryl's father had written a letter to request a grand jury to convene. And on March 8th, 1972, the grand jury did finally meet for the first time in Cleveland County to listen to different witness testimonies and decide if there were any charges that could be filed against Gilly. Yeah. Their final decision stated, We have investigated any and all complaints against the district attorney or his office and find them without merit. So, didn't go anywhere. In February of 1990, so this oh. is much later, 20 years, Fuck. just randomly... I fucking hate that. I know. I hate that it was so long. So just randomly, out of the blue, an old landlord where Frank Gilly used to live showed up at the police department with a 22 caliber rifle that he found in August of 1970, three months after the murder of David and Cheryl. Why he just now... He didn't know it had any relevance. And I don't know what caused him to finally go to the police station, but they reopened the, the investigation. The gun was tested, but again, yielded no results. So what's worse, and this one's pretty fucking awful, the OSBI lost all of the case evidence. All of the hard evidence, they couldn't find it anywhere. When they reopened the case and tried to go find all of the... Hard evidence, gone. Are you fucking kidding me? So the investigators, they're not they're not giving up. Like again, they've reopened this case. They're they're oh. telling Gilly, who lived uh, right outside of Dallas around this time, and they're contacting anyone and everyone who might have recollection, case files, articles, anything from the investigation from the seventies. So Ken Jacobson, who used to work for the OSBI, he had long but retired, but he kept up with Gilly, and he was a huge help in reopening the case. They convinced a Dallas judge to sign a search warrant uh, for Gilly's home, and in November 1990, searched his home. They ended up finding a sawed-off shotgun, which is an illegal weapon to have. Yeah. 
they didn't want Gilly to like come home and see them there. So they contact him at work and they're like, hey, dude, there was just a break in. We're at your house right now. So Gilly like leaves the office and he's like, oh my God. And he gets home and he's like, man, these, these cops are doing a very thorough investigation of this burglary that happened in my home. And then the cops were just like, oh, actually, it was us who broke in. And Gilly's like, where are you from? Did they mouth pop and Z snap? Like, oh, oh it was me. Oh, there Bitch. was there was snapping going back and forth because Gilly's like, where are you from? And they go, Norman, Oklahoma. And Gilly's like, thought so. So mm. he's like, yep, that not surprised one fucking bit. Nothing resulted from this arrest. Gilly was set free. Didn't I tell you this was very frustrating? Like this whole thing. It's like he, yeah. he's like this slippery snake that keeps slipping through. Slipping through their fingers. Because they still have nothing on him. Yeah. So in February 1991, once again, the case was brought to a grand jury. The Norman Police Department wanted to clear its name, and the evidence wasn't getting any better. Like, it was, a lot of it had disappeared. The more time that went on, the less likely anything could happen. So it was now or never. Eventually, Norman prosecutors declared that they would be seeking the death penalty for Gilly due to the period of torture and terror that David and Cheryl endured while being locked alive in the trunk. Oh, fuck, they were alive? Yeah, I'll get into a little bit of details later. Um, Jesus. But they were not they were not dead at the time they were placed in the trunk. David was shot 11 times and Cheryl 14. So those were the <sighs> final count numbers that they got from autopsy results. Most of those shots were in the upper body and their head, which is why they were mutilated. Yeah. In March 1991, the grand jury returned an indictment for Gilly. The charges, one count of perjury... Two counts of first-degree murder. So he's going to trial. Yes. For the first time. Fuck yes. 20 years later. But I'm terrified because I'm still not... I don't know what the evidence is yet. Gilly was arrested in Dallas and brought to Norman. And in July, a hearing was held to determine whether the case had enough evidence to go to trial. So the pre-trial. Yeah. It would be the public's first look at the new details and theories regarding the case. So, again... Gilly's wife mentioned that she had no idea where he was the night of the murder. Henley said he fired Gilly after hearing he harassed couples on Lover's Lane, but that he never saw any connection to Gilly and the crime. I didn't... Did he fire Gilly? I thought Gilly just bounced. No. It, that There's a lot of... We don't know if Henley held. There was a plan. This is what yeah. he's testifying to, but these guys are like... He kind sketches of shit. A scumbag is what yeah. it seems. Some of the couples who uh, he had approached on Lover's Lane or that said he had approached them said he mentioned the murders of David and Cheryl like almost as a threat when he was going up to them. Um, and yeah, I know. Okay. And Jacobson, Ken Jacobson, mentioned that one time when Gilly was saying that he knew David before the murders in Amarillo. Yeah. Officers testified to him having many twenty twos, again, rifles, pistols, multiples. And on the last day of the pretrial, one of the most interesting pieces of evidence emerged. However, it was never corroborated. Um, but a new witness was called to the stand, someone named W. E. Jocelyn, who was a worker at the Norman Dairy Farm owned by Charles Haynes in Western Norman. 
He said he arrived at the property, which has a view of the Lover's Lane where David and Cheryl were killed at about 3 a.m. on Mother's Day, 1970. So the day, like that morning after. He said he was leaving the barn at about 7 a.m. and he saw two men standing next to parked cars. Shortly afterwards, he heard gunshots. It was ruled after this uh, pre-trial that Gilly would stand trial. Good. Why didn't this dude come forward 20 years ago? Yeah, no, that would have been real helpful, wouldn't uh, it? Have? Yeah. Although, this is the first time, if you remember, when he was indicted by the first grand jury, they said there wasn't enough evidence to go to trial. So this yeah. okay, may have been fair. a thing, because again, this didn't come up in the second grand jury either. Yeah. So, I don't really know all the ins and outs of that, but October 1991, trial oh, date. Cheryl's father testified. A woman who found David's car covered in blood testified. The medical examiner explained in detail how David and Cheryl died, both shot again multiple times, including bullets fired directly into each of their eyes. Oh, shit. Two of Gilly's ex-wives testified, saying he never mentioned to either of them that he worked in Norman as a police officer, though they knew of his work in Amarillo. A daughter of an ex-wife said Gilly told her he killed someone and kept a diary of old cases with pictures of dead bodies, but there were no records of him ever killing someone um, in the line of duty. Jacobson pointed to the unusual handling of the case and what he considered obstruction that interfered with the investigation because of this, like, bro mentality of the police department. Yeah. Hensley said he thought Gilly was the target of a hate plot and smear campaign. The defense mentioned the lack of physical evidence and timing creating a lack of recollection. So they're like, how do you guys remember, like, these things in detail? Like, we can't trust this information because it's so old. Really? Yeah, that was their argument. On the final day of trial, Gilly took the stand to proclaim his innocence. And on November 11th, 1991... He was found not guilty. Looking back, the death penalty is uh, one of the things that really could have clouded the jury's judgment, especially with it being a 20-year-old case, lack of hard evidence, only circumstantial. They didn't feel it was enough to send him to the electric chair. I think if they had not been pursuing the death penalty, and this is what a lot of the um, prosecutors feel and happened in this case, if they hadn't have pursued that that they would have gotten a conviction. God. But there's there's a theory as to, you know, how Gilly was involved in these murders. And so the theory is that he approached David and Cheryl on Lover's Lane. David recognized him from Amarillo and gets out of the car. And David carried a broken pool cue in his car as his, like, that was his weapon of choice, his yeah. protection. And... Gilly then, as soon as David got out of the car, Gilly shoots him a few times. And they're, you know, probably Cheryl's terrified and just does whatever he says. He probably took both of them, put them in the trunk, and ends up shooting up the car, shooting them, like just completely um, annihilating them. And uh, so technically their murders are still unsolved. Although it's pretty evident who a lot of people feel are, or who a lot of people feel is Uh, guilty of of this. 
um, definitely yeah. Frank Gilly. But I, but I can I I can see I I understand taking him to court then as a now or never option, but I can also see how the jury is like we don't have enough concrete evidence. It's was, circumstantial. It was all circumstantial, and we've been and saying this in a lot of our episodes recently that yeah, since unfortunately, unfortunately, circumstantial evidence is generally not enough to get a conviction. No, and it shouldn't be. No, because it the, be. it, you absolutely do need that hard evidence to prove. But fuck, I wonder with how much lengths the um, the police chief and the police department went to help him. I wonder how much evidence they found and disposed of. Who knows? Like, is there? Was there physical evidence that was found that could link him to it that they were like, oh, shit, no, we we can't let them know we have this? Well, that and or Gilly was a cop. He knew what cops would look for. He knew how to clear the crime scene. Well, and in the same way you mentioned at the beginning, you know, with a twenty-two, you throw it in a river and boom, you're good. Yeah. He could have thrown it in the Canadian River. Boom. Yeah, it's gone. Like, he just... He knew what to do to cover his tracks. He knew what... But it's the... As far as the motive and why he did this, maybe it's because David recognized him and he was going to be haggling him. But then he was like, oh, shit, I know this kid and I just moved here. and Or maybe he was just feeling extra shitty that night. I don't know. But in all the same way, it could be that... Yeah, he did have the connection to the... You know, he knew the kid from Amarillo, and he didn't like him, so maybe he made a shitty comment about him. And maybe and, that's it. Yeah, m- yeah, maybe he literally wasn't involved in any way. Maybe he was just a dirtbag. Yeah. So... You'd be, he's a shit without murdering people, but I it absolutely sounds like he should be guilty. Yeah. So, if you want more details on this case, again, it's super convoluted, super interesting. Listen to the Uncovered podcast by the OU Daily. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great. I've listened to the first couple of episodes and highly, highly recommend it. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed our college town murders. Yeah. Um, but I think now let's jump into postmortem. Yeah. Um. I mean, I was just going to say it right off the bat. I think you absolutely won. I think because of the convolutedness of it, yes. Well, just Although the, the injustice. Yours, yours also had a lot of injustice. And yeah. it was an interesting parallel how there was, um, you know, the, the police departments were involved a lot in both yeah. of our cases. Yeah, absolutely. That just came out as a really dumb statement because most police departments are I mean, involved it, in No, yeah, <laughs> but I know what you mean. <laughs> um. But I will say, I with, I, I think with all the back and forth and everything, and the fact that the murders of Cheryl and David are still technically unsolved, and at yeah. this point, completely cold. Yeah. Like, I don't think there's really well, anywhere to go from here. Unless, because they could retry him for it if they found new evidence. They would have to find new evidence. They would have to find new evidence and could, I think, could not use the old evidence. No, because then double jeopardy. Yeah, but, so he could be, at this point, he's probably gonna die before... I actually 
don't know if he is still alive. I didn't oh. look that up. Sorry okay. for not having that bit no, of information. No, that's, yeah. But, yeah, I will um, take my second one in a row. Thank you. This never happens to me anymore, so I will take it. I forgot you won last time. Yeah, I did. Bringing out the big guns. All right. Well, with that, be sure to hop on Apple Podcasts and yes. give us a rating. Um, love to hear what you think. And be sure to follow us on social, Facebook, yeah. Twitter, Instagram, all, all of it. We also have a website. Check it out, bloodandwinepodcast.com. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's really pretty. I like it. Me too. I'm a fan. <laughs> all right, y'all. And with that... Um, I, I think this is time for us to head out. Yeah. Uh, Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye. Bye.